Today's scripture is Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. Guess who said that? G.K. Chesterton. Oh, yeah, that's surprising, isn't it, to begin a sermon with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. But it happened again. So, um, uh, you know, I, I listened to Matt's sermon last week, so I saw he's keeping the tradition running, which I like. But what I believe that quote captures, that, that art is limitation, the essence of every picture is the frame, is that the heart of every true artistic endeavor is humility. That in order to create something, the, the artist at some point has to accept her limitations, and only in doing so can she be free to create. Because the truth is, you know, you, you can't paint a picture of the whole world. You can never tell the whole story. The movie can't go on forever. The song must end. And humility is not just the essence of art, it's the essence of discipleship, too. And so this summer, we've been doing a series called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, following uh, uh, the late great pastor, theologian, Bible translator, uh, and author Eugene Peterson through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, which are these songs that were sung by pilgrims going to Jerusalem. And we've been looking at them to see what they have to teach us about vital aspects of what it means to be on our own pilgrimage with Jesus towards God. And so the theme of today's psalm, the, the vital aspect of discipleship that it touches on is humility, understanding, accepting, living from within our own limitations. Now, anecdotally, from, from time to time, uh, given my position, sometimes I, I have to sit down in, some, in front of some committee or fill out some kind of questionnaire, and almost inevitably, you're always asked to reflect. What have you learned? You know, how is your understanding of your vocation, your calling, um, yourself as a pastor? How has that changed in the past, you know, fill in the blank amount of time? And the answer that rings truest for me is that over the last 10 years um, since my ordination, which happened here October 18, 2009, so almost 10 years at this point. What I've learned most, and, and experience can be a really hard teacher in this area, but, but what I've learned the most about are my limitations, the things that I can't do, and that I need to live my life of discipleship inside of that frame, that God has given me a frame, and it's within that framework that I am free to be creative. And that's not a punishment. It's a gift. Because when I started doing this, I thought that I, I needed to be everything and to do everything. Be everything, do everything. Whose job does that sound like it is? God's. That's, that's, that's God's job. And that's, you know, above my pay grade, infin infinitely above my pay grade. That's the foolishness of youth and the foolishness 
of pride. All I need to be is who I actually am and do what God has actually called me to do. And, and, and that's the same for each and every one of us. Be who we actually are and do what we're actually called to do. And Peterson argues that, that humility is about pruning. It's about doing maintenance on our souls. And the thing about pruning is that it can look destructive. It can look painful. It can look pointless, even, to the untrained, uninitiated eye. It's like we have these hydrangeas in our front yard. And they weren't growing quite like we thought they, they should. They weren't as big as we thought that they should be. And so Amy asked her friend, what should we do in order so that these things can flourish? And she said, chop them all the way back down. Which is scary because, you know, we paid decent money for these things a couple of years ago. It's like, I spent 50 bucks on this hydrangea. Like, I don't want this hydrangea to die. I love it. And, it, you know, when it flowers, it looks nice. But, but she said, no, chop it all the way back. And so Amy did it. And you look at it and you go, oh, my gosh, we've killed it. It, it, we've, it's done. We've, we've, we've just killed this thing, but actually now it's flourishing. It's darn near flowering already. And it's actually as big, it's bigger than it ever was. It's actually going to grow up to its full potential. Same thing is true with roses. You got to prune off what isn't growing in order to bride what is growing with life. And so Psalm 131 about humility, it's this pruning process. It's about getting rid of that which looks good to those who don't know any better. And it's about reducing the distance between our hearts and their roots in God. And the two things that are pruned away in the psalm are this, and we see them in verses 1 and 2 respectively. So first thing that's getting pruned away is unruly ambition. And the second thing that gets pruned away is infantile dependency. So first, unruly ambition. Verse 1 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And so the language of this verse, of, of hearts lifted up, of eyes raised too high, of being occupied with great and, and, and too marvelous things, these are images of pride and arrogance and vainglorious self-assertion. Unruly ambition at its core, it, it's about the complete rejection of any limitations upon the self. I mean, this harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden where the serpent, serpent tempts Eve to reject the single limitation, just one limitation, placed on our first parents. Can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree that has the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so pride is that sin that refuses to accept that there might be limits to what we might know or limits to what we might do. And Peterson says that every culture, it has stumbling blocks that get in the way of discipleship. And he says this is especially true when those stumbling blocks are cultural idols. In our context, ambition is one of those idols. Peterson says, and I agree with him, that, that our culture encourages and rewards ambition almost without qualification. And there's three types of ambition that predominate our age. There's the ambition for more and more, so this, this ambition towards acquisition. And there's the ambition for better and better, this, this, this ambition for excellence. And then there's the ambition for higher and higher, fame, notoriety. And so what all of these share in common is they, that they are about casting off limitations in service of self. 
And the story of unruly ambition, it's as old as the story of one Dr. Faust. Now, many of us in this room are probably at least vaguely familiar with the story of Dr. Faust or Dr. Faustus. He was this medieval sort of uh, guy who became an alchemist, but his story was famously picked up by uh, Christopher Marlowe, a person who some people think is Shakespeare, and then um, in in the 19th century uh, by the German poet uh, Goethe. And it's this famous story about ambition, unchecked ambition, a refusal to accept limitations. And so Faust was this man of of great learning and erudition, but he was still frustrated with his life because he recognized the limits of his knowledge and the limits of his power, too. And because he recognized that for as much as he knew and understood, you know, being a great man of learning of his age, he, he knew that that was just a tiny drop in the ocean of everything he didn't know. And for everything he could accomplish, he recognized that there was an infinite amount that he couldn't do through his own power. And so he regarded himself as this mass of ignorance. And plus, he said, what good is all this learning for? I'm a poor academic. I'm barely scraping by. And so he wanted to turn to magic, to learn magic, so he could obtain these godlike powers. But in order to master magic, he he had to seek forbidden knowledge and power, which he obtains by making a pact with the devil. So this is this classic, you know, story of making a deal with the devil in order to get what you want. And so Faust makes a deal with the devil uh, who appears in the form of this demon, Mesistopheles. And Mesistopheles promises, he says, Faust, I will give you unlimited knowledge and power for 24 years. And in exchange, you have to give me your eternal soul. You'll be eternally damned. And Faust accepts the bargain, a, a Faustian bargain, making a deal with the devil. And, and he signs the pact in his own blood. And Mesistopheles says this in, in, in Goethe's version of the Faust story. He says, you have to sign it with your blood because blood is a very special kind of juice. And so he takes his lifeblood and signs this contract. And then after he does, Mesistopheles bids Faust, he says, go out into the world. There are now no limits and no restrictions in your way. And Peterson holds that the story of Dr. Faust has fallen out of favor, he says, because we live in a, in a Faustian society, a world beyond limits where we believe the ultimate end of all things is to serve the self. It's this perversion of that great first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which in its correct form says, you know, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God, enjoy God forever. But in the world of Dr. Faust, it's what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify the self, to enjoy yourself forever. And ambition is difficult because it does bear a passing resemblance to something good, aspiration. It's a virtue. But ambition is a a malignant form of aspiration. Because who who of us doesn't aspire to be better, to do better, to, to create a better world for our friends, our family, the people we know and love? But ambition is what happens when we take aspiration and when we remove God from the equation. Peterson says ambition is aspiration gone crazy. Aspiration is the channeled creative energy that moves us to growth in Christ, shaping goals in the spirit. Ambition takes these same energies for growth and development and uses them to make something tawdry and cheap, sweatily knocking together a babble when we could be vacationing in Eden. John Calvin comments, those who yield themselves up to the influence of ambition 
will soon lose themselves in the labyrinth of perplexity. So Psalm 131, it, it prunes away unruly ambition by accepting the limitations that come from, from the simplest, but sometimes this is the hardest truth to remember and learn and to drill down into our souls. It's that God is God and we are not. That God is at the center of the universe, we are not. And that we exist to serve God. God doesn't exist to serve us. And so when we prune away unruly ambition, we are able to nourish and grow from those truths. And once we begin to understand that, then we can find our proper place in God's world and God's purposes. So verse 1, it deals with unruly ambition. But then there's verse 2, an infantile dependency. Because the mistake is thinking, well, the opposite of unruly ambition and pride is to, you know, sort of be insecure or, 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 or to, you know, pretend or make ourselves believe that we're not actually good at anything or we should aspire to nothing. And that also is a way of folly. Verse 2 says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So humility means, yes, that we are not God, but it doesn't mean that we're absolved of the responsibility that comes with growing up. The psalmist relates to God as a child, but most importantly, not as a nursing infant, but as a weaned child sitting in his mother's lap. And so true humility comes from moving beyond the stage of spiritual infancy. Because the spiritual infant is like a baby crying for his mother's milk. And so for the spiritual infant, God exists to satisfy my desires, to listen to and immediately respond to my cries. And so infantile dependency, it's actually just another form of pride, another way of placing ourselves at the center of the universe and saying God exists for us. Unruly ambition says I'm powerful, so, you know, God uh, exists to make me even more so. And infantile dependency says, I'm weak, and so God exists to meet my every need. But the weaned child is different. The weaned child is just happy to be with his mother. Not because of what his mother can give him, but because of who his mother is, the one who loves him, nurtures him, cares for him, wants him to grow. The spiritual infant wants God for his own sake, but the spiritual child wants God for God's own sake. And the difference between the spiritual infant and and the weaned spiritual child is the difference between neurotic dependence and willful trust. Peterson says what Psalm 131 nurtures is a quality of calm confidence and quiet strength that knows the difference between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration and knows how to discriminate between infantile dependency and childlike trust. So that's got to be pruned away as well. And then we ask, well, what does that humble life look like? What is it characterized by? And that's where we get to in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so the humble life is marked by hope, but the Hebrew word that's translated as hope is actually the same word as, as waiting. And so another way to translate it would be, wait for the Lord, O Israel, from now until forevermore. And so humility looks like waiting. Now, waiting is not doing nothing, and it's not even always that patient. But waiting is a way of living that acknowledges that God is in charge. God is the first mover, and we're the ones who respond faithfully to 
to what God does. The prideful do and ask God to get involved. The infantile cry and ask God to respond, but the humble wait and ask for God to show them how we can support what he's up to in this world. The Old Testament scholar John Goldingay says on this message of, of waiting that's at the heart of this psalm, he says, individual believers are fond of the idea that they should seek to make a difference. You mean, how often are we told that make a difference in the world? And so we, we, we sort of see ourselves as heroes of the story. So individual believers are fond of the idea that they should seek to make a difference. And the church is fond of the idea that it should seek to bring in or further extend the kingdom of God, right? Our church, we get big ambitions for the things that we're going to do for God and God's kingdom in the world. We're going to make a difference too. But the Psalms suggest that the task of the people of God is rather to wait for the kingdom of God. And Jesus also takes this view. Instead of being lofty and looking high and going about thinking what we can do, that we can do wonders that are actually too great for us, the suppliant invites us to relax like a child in its mother's arms. This is a statement that will infuriate readers, which, as usual, shows us how important it is. Right? We want to be somebody. We want to do something. We want to be a, a, a church of somebody's doing something great for God. Waiting is beneath our dignity, the, the status that we've achieved. But the message here is wait for the Lord. And so humility, it sometimes can be this bitter pill to swallow because it shows us our place and it puts us in our place too. God is God. We are not. God is at the center. We are not. We exist for God, not God existing for us. As is fitting, let's give the last word, or almost the last word, to Eugene. Our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. Being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation. That's humility, accepting the terms of creation, living within those limits, accepting God as our maker and redeemer, and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ, developing joy, experiencing love, maturing in peace. By the grace of Christ, we experience the marvel of being made in the image of God. If we reject this way, reject these limits, the only alternative is to attempt the hopelessly forthright, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God made in the image of men and women like us. God is God. We are not. That is the essence of humility. That is the true framework in which we are free to be disciples. The limitation that isn't a prison, but the source of all freedom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.